A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The first casualty in the cultural war is truth. I, I can't remember who I heard say that, but I know exactly where I was when I heard uh, someone say that for the first time. I was sitting in a doctor's office. I was waiting on my wife to get done with an appointment that she was in. And uh, I don't know why this is. I don't know if you've even noticed this, but every doctor that they put uh, you in these days, if they have a TV in the room, they have 24-hour news on. I think it's just to ensure that everybody has high blood pressure by the time you go in. And uh, I decided a long time ago, in fact, 10 years, I haven't, I haven't looked at any news or listened to the news or the radio. I, I don't take in news uh, at any point uh, because everybody in here tells me the news and <laughs> I don't need to listen to anybody that will inflame me with the news. But on that particular day, I normally have uh, my earbuds in, but I just talked to somebody and I didn't get it in and I heard the statement. And uh, it caught my attention, and they baited me in, and they were these two guys really well-dressed in suits and one blonde-headed woman that was really animated, and they kept going back and forth and back and forth, and they must have said five times, the first battle that is lost in every culture war is the battle for truth. And being a contrarian, I sort of said under my breath, that, that's not right. That, that's not the first thing that's lost in the culture war. It's not truth. Now, if you're here for the first time, my name's Ed, and I'm one of the pastors around here. We're really glad you came. And we've been studying, as you see on the screen since the beginning of the year, uh, the life of Jesus. We're Jesus people around Community Christian, and so at the beginning of every year, we just go through the life of Jesus, and we try to learn how we can be with Jesus better because we believe that we can be with Jesus we can learn from Jesus how he lives his life, and eventually he and the Holy Spirit will help us become like Jesus. We want to understand the way he lived, and then over time, we can begin to do what he wants us to do. And over the last few weeks, as we read these accounts, I hope you've already discovered Jesus came into a world where people were right in the middle of a huge culture war. In fact, in the middle of the country he was in, there was this huge religious debate, and it had broken down into a full-on culture war of who was right and who was wrong. And in the culture war of his day, there was a group of people who stood on the side of everything that everyone thought was right. They were right on every value question. They, were, they rejected relativism. They stood for absolute truth. They stood on the right side of the unwavering adherence to ethical absolutism as they saw taught in the scripture. They were committed to the Judeo-Christian ethic that we now call monogamy in marriage and chastity outside of marriage. They were right on these things. They promoted in their way of seeing the culture that there was only one true God. And they rejected what was going on in their world that said every God's just basically the same, religion's all the same, which was, well, it was Roman paganism. 
That's what was happening in their culture. But the interesting thing is that the people who stood on the right side of every issue according to the Bible, they couldn't get along with Jesus. The people who were on the right side of everything, on every value point of truth, they're the people that had the hardest time, uh, and they rejected him openly. In fact, this group of people that we now call the Pharisees, uh, they loved the truth of God. They stood with the truth of God. They studied the truth of God. Jesus says to them one time, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. But as we've seen the last few weeks in this series, Jesus' message was really, really hard for them to get their mind around. Three years they interact with him. Three years they watch him go around, and they thought he came down on the wrong side of the culture war. They weren't able to... They weren't able to get on his track. And those who couldn't, who couldn't worship in the temple, the people who couldn't fit into their little box, they loved Jesus. Man, they loved being with Jesus. They heard his message. And I mean, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the people who had collaborated with Rome against this people on the right, right side of everything, those that sort of had given in to false worship, they heard Jesus. People have been controlled by evil spirits, as Jason taught us about last week. Man, they turned to Jesus in droves. Now, even though it's true that they struggle with Jesus in the culture war, over time, by the time that Jesus, when he finally gives his life on the cross, some of the Pharisees, they, they got it. We find that some of them begin to turn to him. In fact, two of them, they're the ones that take his body off the cross. They bury him, and they become... They become open disciples. We find later in the book of Acts that some of them would come around to the truth, but it seems that even though Jesus stayed in, he was dinner guest in their home, he tried as hard as he could with these priests, he talked to them all the time, he had conversations with them repeatedly with them. Most of the Pharisees, they had these radical claims about truth. They understood the truth of God. They read the scriptures, but they couldn't get what he was saying. Now, if you're here today and you're like me and you don't really like the whole political thing going around our country and you just sort of bail out on the whole thing so you don't care about the culture war, the good news is the only reason I bring up the culture war is not to talk to you about the culture war that people say is happening in our country. I am not about that. I bring that up because this gives us a chance to see a, a really clear picture of what becomes the defining thing for followers of Jesus. Jesus uses this battle that they're in the middle of to get to the one thing that'll be the defining point of his movement. It happens in the scripture you already heard this morning. It's the core of his teaching. And in time, the teaching is so different than anything they'd ever heard. Even though it sounds so much alike, even though some of them can say it out loud, it's so different that when Jesus answers the question that was the question in the culture war, uh, they miss it. See, they have a question much like people have in our culture war. Uh, it's, the culture, it's the kind of question that gets asked that once you understand the answer to this, you don't really need to know any more about the person. It's the kind of question, you know, like in our world, if you hear a candidate's running, you know where he stands on abortion or you know where he stands on taxes or you know where he stands on the federal budget, 
you think to yourself, I already heard everything I need to know. I don't need to know anything else about him. I've already decided about him. Well, their culture war, it had a question too. And it gets asked to Jesus again and again and again. Jesus, what's the most important commandment of God? Now, if you read the life of Jesus, and you really ought to, you'll see he gets asked this different times in different ways again and again and again, right up to just a day or two before they kill him. He gets asked this culture war question, where do you stand on the most important commandments? So they ask him, and you heard it read. He says, love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the great thing about that is it's one little sentence. And it's so simple, and it's so clear. And the arrival of this with Jesus, it signals the beginning of the the death of all these things that people normally think about. How do I get right with God? How do I know where I stand with God? How does God feel about me and the failures of my life? I mean, it's incredibly simple. You love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor about yourself. It's not totally about truth. They would mention, you know, though I, I, I don't know how I could say this any differently, if you do love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, it will change what you think about lots of stuff. The more you find out about God and who he really is, the more you understand how he feels about our world, a lot of thoughts you have, you won't be able to hang on to anymore. It'll change the way you think about God. It'll change the way you think about people. It'll make you want to know him more and understand him better. Not because you're afraid that if you don't know him better, he's going to do something bad to you. But because you just want to know him because he knows you so well and you love him. It's the second phrase that's always been the problem for people. Now, most scholars in our day, in fact, for the last 800 years or so, have understood that what Jesus is trying to do with the second phrase is tell people, this is how you know you really love God with all your, so you don't play games with yourself. How do you know you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul? You love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, 1 John, he says that again and again, if you don't love your neighbor, how can you say you love God? I mean, it's the love of neighbor that clearly defines whether you love God or not. And from the earliest moments of Jesus' teaching, he answers this question again and again. In Luke 10, I'll show you, he's asked the same question in a little different way. Teacher, this teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what do you have to do to inherit something? Nothing. It's a gift. It's given to you. You just have to receive it. It's just a different way of this guy saying to him, what's the most important commandment from God? Jesus replies to him, what's written in the law? I mean, you're the expert. You're the one that studied the law. What do you think the law says is the most important commandment? And the guy gets it right. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and 
Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But, that's a big word. The man who asked the questions wanted to justify himself. You know what that's like, right? It's the thought you have in your mind where you know that God wants you to love in a certain way, but wanting to justify why you don't love people. You begin to put parentheses around things. But wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself. Not because he didn't have the right beliefs. He got the belief part right. He stood on the right side of truth. He answered everything correctly. He knew he needed, if he was going to get it right on the last part, he knew I got to narrow the field of people down like to my kids and my grandkids. If I could narrow it to that, well, I pass. The result is he had a rightness of belief, but he couldn't practice, and he became unable to love. The truth about these people in the culture war that were right on everything is the reason they had trouble with Jesus is they didn't want anybody healed on the Sabbath not because God didn't command it. They didn't care. They didn't want to see the woman caught in adultery forgiven. They didn't want sinners to get to share in the fellowship with everybody else. They came to see people that God had called them to love as the enemy, or at least as someone they could edge out and just ignore. And if you haven't already felt it, that danger runs through every human heart. It runs right through the middle of every one of us. Anybody who's honest enough to want to follow Jesus, to, the desire to seek to justify ourselves while living to some other standard than love, that's why the first, the first loss, the first battle that's lost in a culture war is always love, not truth. It's my decision. I don't have to love those people because I can, I can stand on the side of truth. So I don't have to love. I, I have a note in my desk that I've kept for more than a decade. In fact, now I've copied it because I read it so much. You know how when you read it that the paper gets weak? It's a letter from a friend of mine that, oh, it's probably 15 years ago now. He invited me to come and teach some of his leaders. And so I went, and after it was over, you know, he wrote me this letter, and it, here's what it says. It says, Ed, over the years, we've known each other. I've always known you to be a very good leader. You're exceptionally action-oriented, someone that other people want to follow. You have the ability to get things done. But when you came and spoke to our leaders, I was surprised by your softness and your compassion toward them. As we talked, it was your loving spirit that caught me totally off guard. God used you. Good job. Now, if you were with my counselor, you'd know I don't ever keep notes that tell me good things about me. He told me that was a problem, so I've started. I only keep notes where people criticize me. 
And the reason I kept this note is not the nice things he said at the beginning, but the fact that I've known this guy for 25 years and he was shocked that I could be nice to people. That I couldn't just come and teach them how to lead, but that I had the ability to do the one thing Jesus said mattered. He was shocked that I would be able to love. But the honest truth is, when I read the note, it didn't take me long to admit. He nailed it. He nailed it. Love has not always been the highest value in my life. It's just another one of the long list of things that God wanted me to do. And my guess is that happens to everybody in this room. And because this is the deal, and it's so important, I don't want to rush by it, so Molly's going to lead us in a time where you can prayerfully reflect on that. One of Jesus' closest friends and followers, John, once wrote, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The way that we know we're living our, an interactive life with God is the way in which we are growing in love, and love is the highest priority. But if you're like me, often other things take a higher priority. And as we've said throughout this series, we want all of our lives to tell a good story. And whatever we want that story to be, that determines our greatest priority. So maybe your highest priority is accomplishing more, or being more successful, or maybe it's having a life of comfort, or maybe it's trying to get your friends and your family to do what you want them to do. Or maybe it's just something else. But if we're honest, the idea of love the kind of love that Jesus showed on the cross, it's not as high of a priority. But for followers of Jesus, we do not determine the story our lives tell. Jesus does. Our lives are to follow the story of his life, which is best seen in self-sacrificial love on the cross. So what's taking priority in your life right now? What often takes the place of love for you? If you're not sure, think about whatever's causing tension or conflict in your relationships right now. What keeps you up at night? What stresses you out or causes anxiety for you? That is most likely your top priority. So would you take a moment right now to ask God to reveal to you what is taking top priority in your life? And I'll give you a few moments of silence to do that. And now, would you ask God to make clear what your next step in making love your top priority is? What would be different in this situation or this relationship if you made loving God 
and by loving the other person your top priority? What might you have to give up since love most looks like the cross? Let's take a moment to talk to God about that. Now would you just simply say to God, I surrender. Just surrender whatever that is to him and promise to follow his example of love. Just say to God, I surrender. Heavenly Father, teach us what it means to love like you. Help us to learn the beauty of surrender and self-sacrificial love. Help us to let go of whatever we're holding on to that keeps us from loving you by loving others. Help us to be like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus answered this religious leader's question of who is my neighbor by telling one of his most famous stories, the Good Samaritan. By making the hero of his story a Samaritan man who would have been the national and ethnic enemy of Jesus' Jewish audience, Jesus was drawing the circle of neighbor bigger than anyone had ever imagined. Your neighbor is not just your family or your friends or your physical neighbor. It's whoever is in need around you, but it's also your Samaritan enemy. You are to love your neighbor and your enemies. In Jesus' way of seeing it, loving others includes everyone whom God brings around you. And this is clear, but through the years, the idea that I can love God and not love my neighbor begins to creep in. And this idea holds us back from living the full interactive life with God that Jesus came to offer. And unfortunately, it's in so much of what we call Christianity. And it drives so much of what we think God cares about. Here's what I mean. If you've ever felt more guilt over missing church or not reading your Bible than you have about the way that you talked to someone that you disagreed with or the way that you treated your waitress, or if your conscience bugs you that you should be praying more or doing some religious practice more, but you don't feel any conviction over the ethnic stereotypes that you secretly hold that allow you to write off a whole group of people, or if there is something in you that thinks that God would like you more if you did more for Him, but that doing for God has nothing to do with the people that He's put in your life, you've missed the Jesus way. If anything about the way that you love God makes it harder for you to love other people, you're missing Jesus. You see, the question most of us ask about God is the question the religious leaders ask. What do I need to do or believe to make things right between God and me? And it's not like that's an evil question. It may be a helpful one as you begin to pursue life with God. But if that stays my primary focus, then it puts me at the center of my approach to God and not God. And in case you didn't know it, God is at the center of everything. But when I'm focused on what I need to do to keep God happy, I'm always more focused on rules and rituals than the people around me. It's why the religious leaders were so concerned about the Sabbath or about who was pure and who wasn't. It's why people in our world argue about the right way to pray or take communion and all the rest. It might start with good intentions, but eventually everyone's looking for loopholes 
and rituals become escape clauses, which eventually lead to hypocrisy. Which is why so many people in our world hate church. Maybe it's why you didn't go for years. Because church people are good at keeping all the rules, but you could see it was all a show. You saw how people talked a good game and they dressed up and sang all the songs on Sunday, but it didn't affect how they treated other people for the rest of the week. And eventually, to live the interactive life that God wants us to have with Him, we have to move from the question, what must I do to keep God happy? Because Jesus makes clear that once we put our trust in Him, we are fine with God and God is fine with us. So to spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out or trying to make sure you don't mess it up, that is totally the wrong way. And it keeps you from asking the things that will eventually lead you toward growth and maturity and life in God's kingdom. See, what Jesus calls us to be focused on is not you asking about yourself, but asking about the person next to you. So if you're politically liberal, then it focuses on the person to the right of you. If you're a conservative, then it focuses on the person to the left of you. If you hold prejudice in your heart, it's the person that you don't really want to live near or that you don't want to have anything to do with. It's about you moving towards the person that Jesus calls your enemy. Following Jesus is the invitation to leave a life that's all about you and to begin learning to love whoever is near you, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you take that one idea, this one big idea that Jesus spins out, and you read all the teachings of Jesus again, it changes everything. If at the heart of Jesus is he's teaching me how to love and not how to keep rules, it teaches, it just changes things. So Jesus says to his disciples the last night he's with them, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must love one another. The whole New Testament again and again is just fleshing out this one commandment in different ways of how we break it and we mess it up. When you look at it that way, we have to learn to love, not in a way that we define love, as we've talked about before. I'm defining love by the way it has been described to me, not by the Ten Commandments, but by what Jesus has done for me. I love other people exactly like he has always loved me. Paul gets so frustrated with this as he travels around. In fact, if you read all of his books, it's basically him talking to the church again and again and again about why can't y'all get along? The whole other thing is we have to love one another just as we've, as we've been loved. In fact, in the book of Galatians, which uh, many people believe is the very first letter he writes to a church, he says it this way, the only thing that counts, that's a way to start a sentence if you're a preacher. The only thing that counts. So what comes after the only thing that counts? The only thing that counts is the way you pray. The only thing that counts is what you understand about the Bible. The only thing that counts is that you get baptized and you make sure you do that before you die. The only thing that counts is you go to church. I mean, what is the only thing that counts? Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts. He goes on in the same chapter just to make sure that they didn't miss it, and so we don't either. And he really starts, 
just restating what Jesus says. See, the problem is we just struggle with that. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom that comes from Christ and the grace that he's given you. Don't let that freedom cause you to indulge your own flesh. Rather, use it to serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, the entire law fulfilled in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, frankly, I don't know how we messed it, but most of us, it's different than the way we think about life with God. But that one thing can change everything. For instance, do you know why you teach people in the church that we don't, we don't lie to each other? Do you know why Christians don't lie to each other? Well, because it's one of the big 10, you know, it says don't bear false witness. And Jesus says, you know, at one point, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And there's a clear command. And then at one point, Ed, Paul says, liars go to hell. I don't want to go to hell, so I don't lie. That's not the reason Christians don't lie. You know why Christians don't lie? Because when you lie, you cover your backside at the expense of somebody else. You take care of yourself and you cost somebody else. And Christians do not live like that. We give up our rights for the sake of others. When I lie, I cover myself at your cost. Now, if you were my son and daughter, I mean, honestly, I love them more than I love you, so I tell them the truth even if it's a hard truth, but honestly, I don't love you enough to tell you the truth. I don't love you like I love them. See, we don't do it because the book says so. The book says so because God has always loved people and he's driving us toward his highest value. We love each other because what God has done for us is the driving force in our life. You know, when it comes down to things like generosity and we teach generosity in the church, you know why Christians should be the most generous people on the planet? Well, because we've been blessed to be a blessing. And I know that if I give God a dollar, he'll give me $10. It's like a way to get rich, Ed. I mean, I've heard people talk about that my whole life. I've been blessed to be a blessing. And so I want to give so I can be blessed. It's, that's not the reason. The reason we ought to be the most generous people on the planet is it's really simple. I'll say it as clearly as I can. The reason I'm generous with other people is my generosity helps the person I'm generous to. Now, I know that was deep, so I'm going to say it slow. <laughs> when I am generous with my time or my love or my money or my stuff and I give it to someone, it helps the person I gave it to. And that's the reason we're generous. Not because the book commands it, but because Jesus said, I love the way that he loves and the rain and the sun fall on the good and the bad. And God is generous. And when I am generous, I look a little bit more like his kid. We are generous because he is generous. Do you know why Christians shouldn't talk bad behind the back of other people? Because you don't ever talk behind the back of somebody you love. None of you ever come to me and say, let me tell you some dirty little secret about my son. You always brag about stuff that ain't really true about your kids. 
No one goes around and tells stuff behind the back of people they love. They protect the people they love. So the reason we don't gossip about people is because it hurts the people we gossip about. And we love people like God has loved us. It's almost as if the apostles of Jesus want to say to you, do I need to give you a rule for everything? Aren't you smart enough to see that if you love people, you doesn't love cover a multitude of sins? Now, every time I talk about this, and I've talked about it a lot over the last 10 years or so, somebody who's been a Christian a long time will come up to me or write me a letter, which I inevitably keep because it feels like it's criticizing me. And they'll say, God, you make things too simple. It's not that simple. You're just making it too simple. It's not what I'm doing. Doing what I ask you to do may be simple. It is far more demanding than you keeping rules. This may be far simpler to understand. It is way more demanding. Because anybody that knows any system that you have a set of rules, there's always a workaround. And everybody that has any set of rules that you give to your kids, your kids find the workaround before you even knew there was a workaround. And then you had to give them another rule. But when you say, I want you to love the way that God has loved you, there is no workaround. It is far simpler for you to understand. It is way more demanding. And you can rule yourself right out of loving anybody in your life. But we always know, we almost always know, all of us, I mean, don't you always know the answer to what's the most loving thing for me to do right now? What would love demand for me to do right now for that person? God, will you help me know how I can love that person, not how I can get out of it. And when people think about, it's just too simple, I just say to you again, don't ever forget that our example of love is a man that we call God, the son of God. And when we talk about our example of love, our example of love is God dying covered in his own blood and other people's spit. And he did it for our sake. And all the Bible is constantly pointing back to following his example of loving people and me denying myself and living my life on the cross with him for the sake of others. That's what faith expressing itself in love looks like. That's how far he expects us to go. It's what love requires. Not a as I say to you almost every time I get to the end of this, I, I, I don't know how this applies to you. Maybe you all are way better at this than I am, and you are knocking it out of the park, and you should have stood up here. But maybe that's not the case. And maybe you, like me, have some changes in your thoughts and minds that you've got to make and change and decide. I have been so greatly loved by God how could I not love the people in my life? 
Maybe for you, you've only been around here a little time and you're trying to figure this whole thing out and the next step for you is just to decide, hey, I, I need to be a part of God's community so that we together can learn what it means to love everyone always. Would you decide to go to the Next Step Center and help us help you take your next step into this community so you can begin to give your life away and you can learn to love with us because some of us are hard to love, in fact, right here. And you can begin to give your life away in loving in this community and loving your neighbor. As you consider what that means for you, we're going to remember the greatest act of love that I just talked to you about by remembering Jesus on the cross, giving our lives, his life for us. Molly's going to come and lead us in that time of remembrance.